Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, January 22nd. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, budget woes, inadequate facilities, and low salaries could affect a state agency charged with keeping the public safe. Learn more. Then, some say school choice vouchers would siphon money away from public schools. Find out why advocates are still pushing for change. And after StoryCorps, an acclaimed filmmaker is celebrating the history of historically black colleges. We'll hear from documentarian Stanley Nelson. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Staff turnover at Mississippi prisons has the commissioner urging lawmakers to raise salaries. Palicia Hall with the State Department of Corrections says there are more than 500 unfilled positions for corrections officers. The problem has led to closing some units for the safety of the remaining staff and the inmates. Hall told the House Appropriations Committee among southern states, Mississippi pays some of the lowest wages for correctional officers. She tells MPB's Desiree Frazier more. We think it's very important to have the conversation about our correctional facilities being appropriately staffed. What we see now that we have a uh, turnover rate of about 31%. While that's a reduction in what we've seen in the last uh, couple of years from about 55%, we know we still have a lot of work to do. I have about a 32% vacancy rate for my correctional staff. That's way too many. There's over 500 vacant positions. And so we believe that it's directly attributable to the salary for our correctional officers. $24,900 is not a lot of money to ask someone to come work in such a dangerous profession as corrections. And so we need to be real about making sure our correctional officers have a living wage in order to adequately staff our facilities. And that wage was raised. It was 22 previously, right? That's correct. It was. And like I said, when I represented to the committee, we're thankful um, for the alignment that they gave us a couple of years ago to raise those wages, but we still have more work to do. We need to continuously look at our correctional officer wages and among our southern states, uh, Mississippi is the lowest paid. And you mentioned um, that in the southern states, this is really a serious issue emergency, states of emergency are being issued? Absolutely. West Virginia is part of the southern state region um, for corrections, and they had to declare a state of emergency because they could not adequately staff some of their facilities, and they called them the National Guard. And so we don't want to have to do that here in Mississippi, but what we're seeing is that it's a nationwide conversation um, about corrections. Um, I just recently returned from a conference where that was part of the agenda, to talk about staffing and corrections, because what we're seeing is a thriving economy in a lot of places. And when the economy thrives, correction suffers. And you also mentioned you had to call, close a facility at, at one of the regional uh, facilities? Well, I had to close a facility at, at one of the units at one of my state facilities. Um, that's South Mississippi Correctional down in Leakesville, Mississippi. Um, did not have adequate staff to actually run that unit. Um, so we closed. It was about a 400-bed unit that we closed. Um, and we had to move those offenders to another location. And what we did was we moved them to the regional facilities. Uh, Reentry. That's an important step that you're trying to take to help offenders 
re-enter society challenging? It is very challenging. Um, it's challenging for one um, because we have such an offender population, large offender population trying to address, but we're committed to, to trying to do it, and it comes at a, at a cost. Um, you have to I think about it in this regard, return on your investment. If I'm rehabilitating those individuals where they're able to go out and get um, gainful employment, where they're able to have successful housing, they're able to address their whatever addiction needs they might have, and we adequately do that, then they're not coming back. And we ultimately will see a positive return on our investment. How do you do that? It's difficult. It's a difficult premise to, to, to do. We have to make sure we have adequate staff um, to run the programming. But programming, first and foremost, is important. Um, evidence-based programming is the way that you have to do that. I talked about having um, pre-release programs where our counselors um, and staff work on um, employment-related skills, partnerships with the community. It's going to take the community to make this work. So those um, community-based partnerships are important, having adequate programming and having the staff to actually run those programs. Now, the technical violation centers, what, what is that? What's a technical violation? Well, technical violation is, is basically when an individual is on supervision, they have certain reporting requirements or, or terms of their supervision. And there are some things like you test hot on a drug test, um, you haven't paid your supervision fees, or you fail to, re- to report. Things like that are technical violations that we look at. Um, if you got in a fight in a bar or something like that, we can look at it from a technical standpoint versus committing a new crime. New crimes are not considered to be technical violations. So we want to make people successful on their supervision. So what we do is basically technical violation gets your attention. You might have anger management issues. You might have a drug addiction that we have to address. So for for that reason, we send you to a technical violation. Again, I call them low-hanging fruit to address those problems on the front end. So if we get your attention, change the way that you think, um, you know, we make sure that you don't come back. How many centers are there? Um, right now we have um, three technical violation centers. We have one um, in LaFleur, um, Simpson, and then um, Flowood for, for my females, but I don't have enough bed space to be able to do that. So that's the reason we're having a conversation about a centralized technical violation center so that I can fully stand up a male unit. There's no problem for my female offenders, but for my male offenders, I don't have enough bed space. And so what do they do there? Well, our hope is that, again, like I said, you address those issues that they have, the reasons that they have violated the terms of their supervision. Do they have some anger management issues? Are they just angry that they even had to be on supervision? And so we give them the programming needed to address those problems for which they got there. Well, thank you so much for your patience, your time, and for what you're doing to help the state. Thank you. I appreciate it. Corrections Commissioner Felicia Hall with our Desiree Frazier. Lawmakers say increasing salaries will be a challenge, but they will take up the issue in budget hearings this week. Coming up, some say school choice vouchers would siphon money away from public schools. Find out why advocates are still pushing for change. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. In 2018, connecting to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio just got a lot easier. If you own a smart home device, such as Amazon Echo or Google Home, you can now ask for MPB by name. Say, Alexa, play MPB Think Radio for up-to-date news and your favorite local programs. Or say, Alexa, play MPB Radio for great music to get you through your day. And that's it. You're connected. With any smart home device, just ask for us by name. Alexa, play MPB Think Radio, where Mississippi is our mission. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Advocates of school choice in Mississippi will be rallying today at the state capitol. 
Students, teachers, parents, and elected officials are expected to participate. Two bills to expand school choice in the state have already been introduced this session. The proposed legislation would widen the state's education scholarship account program beyond students with special needs to all public school students in the state. Grant Callen is with Empower Mississippi. His group lobbies for overall school choice. He tells us more. So in Mississippi, in 2015, the legislature created the Special Needs Education Scholarship Account Program. And this is similar to a voucher, but a lot are calling it a voucher 2.0. It's much more customizable. So the way it works is a family who has a child in a public school who has special needs, and they know that child is really falling through the cracks or not being served well, This program gives parents the option of withdrawing their child from a public school and receiving a scholarship account in the amount of $6,500. And they can use those funds to purchase private school tuition, tutoring, therapy, assisted technology, or really any educational-related products or services that will help them make sure the needs of their child are met. Why do you think there are so many scholarships that were not requested by students or the families of students with special needs? Well, so this program is capped at 434 available scholarships simply because of the way it was funded. We anticipate that growing every year. But one of the the challenges to this program was families were not notified they had received the scholarship until the very last Uh, part of July and early August. So for a lot of families who had applied earlier in the year, by the time August rolled around and they're just being notified that they had a scholarship, many had already made plans for the fall school year and couldn't change that quickly. In your polling, what was the percentage of respondents who support the ESA for special needs students? We knew it would be popular, but when we explained what the ESA program is, 82% of Mississippians support that program. What about other, you asked about school choice or ESAs for for other students. Is there a breakdown of what types of students would be eligible for that scholarship? Well, there's a piece of legislation moving through the legislative process right now that would expand this program that is currently only for students with special needs. It would expand it to additional students. And there would still give first preference to students with special needs, but low-income students would also be given preference. And then anybody else could apply. As long as you're a public school student, you could apply for additional scholarships that were unused. You know, 82% support the existing program, and we asked about expanding it to all students in the state. And 65% said they supported that expanding it to all students compared to just 24% who said they opposed that. So that's a really strong response that shows parents not only want to help students with special needs, but think all kids need some of these same opportunities. If you received that scholarship of $5,000, would that require you to withdraw from public school and to choose a private school? Correct. So this program would satisfy the compulsory attendance law, and parents would have the option of of, of continuing their child in public school, or if 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 that public school is not the right setting, they could enroll in this program and pull their child out. So this program would just give parents another option. Certainly wouldn't change anything for the you know hundreds of thousands of kids who are perfectly satisfied where they are in a traditional public school. But for families who know their students are not in the right setting to meet their unique educational needs, 
this would give those families another option. Is it your goal with Empower Mississippi to have school choice for all students in Mississippi? It is. Look, we believe families know their kids best, and we know that all kids are unique. And so the best system in the world would be one that recognized that all children need to be in the right educational setting and that families ought to have the freedom to select that right setting. And we want to see a world-class education system. And the best way to get there is to have strong public schools, strong private schools, strong charter schools, and then give parents the freedom to match their child with the right school for their child. Grant Callen with Empower Mississippi. Grant, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Groups like the Parents Campaign oppose the legislation. They believe it will divert badly needed funds from public schools to private schools. Coming up, an acclaimed filmmaker is celebrating the history of historically black colleges. We'll hear from documentarian Stanley Nelson. That's after StoryCorps. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you're a sustaining member of MPB Think Radio, we appreciate your support of our programs. To become a sustainer, go to mpbonline.org. Some of the visitors on Mississippi's StoryCorps mobile tour are portals to the past. That was exactly the case when nonagenarian Mandy Elizabeth Underwood stopped by with her daughters, Jackie and Sandra Barnes. Did you have running water in your house? Oh, no. Indoor plumbing? A bathroom inside the house? Oh, no. Well, what'd you do if you had to go to the bathroom? (laughs) We just went outside at the toilet, we called it. Toilet. Okay. An outhouse. Outhouse, yeah. And you had one outhouse that was kind of special, I thought. Well, why why did you think that? How many people could go in at one time? Oh, you could, three or four could go in, (laughs) but you couldn't, but but two use it at one time. Right. But there was more than one outhouse, wasn't there? No. The men went to the barn. How many barns did you have there on the place? Oh, about three or four. What did you use the different barns for? Cows and calves and and horses and mules and chickens, <laughs> your chicken yards and dog yards and what about pig? Pigs, oh, they'd have to be separated. They was noisy and they were just a lot of trouble. <laughs> Do you feed the pigs? Oh, I didn't care a thing about those old pigs. Okay. Was it? Did it have something to do with you and a doll that you didn't care anything about those pigs? My doll? Mm-hmm. Oh, it fell out of the tree and the dogs eat it up, just about it. And that was the only doll I had ever had. Do you remember about how old you were? Probably about four. And how did the doll get in the tree? Oh, it, the wind was kind of strong in the dog fella. But how did it get up there? The dog wasn't up there. <laughs> <laughs> I was, don't guess. Was the, the wind... doll in the tree? Ma'am. You the were... doll? It was yeah, in the tree. Yeah, it, it blowed out. Who put the doll in the tree? I don't know. <laughs> we don't know all that. Okay, well, let's talk about something else. Y'all raised most of the food you ate, correct? Yes, that's and, right. And, and the livestock and and stuff like that. Um, did you ever pick cotton? Oh, many bale, uh, 
hundred pounds, so we we measured it out. It took about four or five hundred pounds to make a bell back when we picked it by hand. And you also had a veg y'all had a vegetable garden, correct? Yeah. You raised most of what you ate, is what I'm getting at. We oh. raised it all. We even raised our chickens and if we had any meat, we raised the pigs and the chickens and hogs. Did you go to school during this time? Yeah. How'd you like school? I wasn't too crazy about it. I cried. I didn't want to go. You didn't. How did y'all get there, get to school every day? We had to walk about three or four miles. Okay. And you didn't go to school, get to go every day. The weather was too bad, and you was lucky if you went half the time. And you once told me that when the crops were coming in, school would kind of take a break for several weeks to get the harvest in. Yeah. What did you like about school? The main things I liked was the sports, basketball and football, but I couldn't play football you couldn't play much. Football. Did you run track? Oh, I, I t- took a part in anything that physically, you know, body that you had to use muscles to do. Do you believe in heaven? Yes. Okay. Who would you like to see when you get to heaven? Mama and Papa. Your mama and your papa. If you could meet God when you got to heaven, what would you say to him? I don't know. Asked him where the rest of the family was. (laughs) 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 Say, who made it and who didn't make it? (laughs) What'd you do with the rest of them kids? (laughs) To hear more of our conversations from the StoryCorps mobile tour, go to mpbonline.org. The StoryCorps Mobile Tour visited Mississippi through a partnership with the Mississippi Humanities Council, the MPB Foundation, and Mississippi Public Broadcasting. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. In February, MPB-TV will join other PBS affiliate stations across the country to celebrate the history of America's historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs. The documentary from acclaimed director Stanley Nelson is called Tell Them We Are Rising. MPB listeners and viewers can get an advanced look at the film at a screening this Thursday in Jackson. Director Stanley Nelson joins us now to talk about what to expect at the event and about the history of HBCUs in America. A lot were founded right after the Civil War. So 1865 and, you know, right on in through there. So a lot of HBCUs celebrated uh, their 150th anniversary last year and this year and the year before. The top eight states with the most HBCUs are all in the South. Mississippi is at number seven with seven HBCUs. Uh, Jackson State, one of our colleges, universities, is the fourth, has the fourth largest enrollment in the country. Because this was a segregated South and whites wanted to keep blacks out of their institutions of higher learning, were they okay with the establishment of HBCUs or were they leery that African-Americans were receiving higher education. It's a bit of both. So as we, as we chronicle in the film, uh, there was a, a massive violence in the South um, um, just because African-Americans were being educated. And that's not only you know, at HBCUs, that's also at high schools. But at HBCUs, uh, were all, HBCUs were also targeted uh, for massive violence in the South. At the same time, 
the the federal government was was founding HBCUs kind of um, in conjunction uh, with founding a a, uh, a white public institution. So you know, University of Mississippi is is founded, University of Alabama at the same time. Uh, a kind of uh, another institution was founded for African Americans because, of course, they were not allowed to attend those institutions. As HBCUs evolved, is their purpose as essential today as 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago? I think they are essential. You know, there, there's facts and figures on those that, that I don't have at the tip of my tongue. I think we just we just came from an event, and uh, one of the facts is I think 35% of, of lawyers are still, uh, black lawyers are, are still graduates of HBCUs. Um, but, you know, it, it, the easy way to say it is in, until racism ends in this country, um, then we need HBCUs. I think in some ways, you know, the conditions um, have changed a little bit, but not that much um, from from their founding. So I, I think HBCUs are, are, are needed today um, as much as ever, and probably in the climate that we live in now, probably more than a, a couple of years ago. In looking at education's purpose, is it a different purpose at an HBCU? I think in some ways it's a slightly different purpose. I think for for much of their history and maybe today, you know, HBCUs had a mission to to not only educate uh, educate young African Americans, but also to inspire them, inspire them to to also you know push for change in this society and and make this society live up to its ideals. So I think that that um, in some ways there, there's been a slightly different mission. You know, there, it's it's kind of education with a purpose, and I think that's been um, a hallmark of HBCUs. And of course, a big question: control. Where is the control? I, I think at this point, the African American community is in control of, of HBCUs. Although, you know, a lot of money for HBCUs comes from state, federal government, so there is the, there is that that bit of it. But for for so much of its history, one thing that that, that we most people don't know, you know, is that HBCUs, the, the presidents of, of uh, the majority of HBCUs, were not African American. So, you know, we talk, in the film, we talk about it, an incident in, in the mid-20s at Fisk University, where the students kind of rose up uh, against the, the president, who, who was white, and, and, you know, as someone says in the film, you know, he didn't know anything about black people, and his secretary said he probably didn't even like black people. So, the, and, and he had instituted a, a, a number of very harsh rules, um, and so the students kind of went, went on strike and, and protested and, and, and changed the, the administration. Uh, one of the interesting things about that is the administration, the next administrator who came in was also white, but he, but he, he was uh, much more tolerant and, and much more uh, in sync with the students. And a final thought from you, why people should watch this? Uh, they should watch this film because it's entertaining. It's, it's, it's uh, something that they have never seen before. We strive to tell stories in this film have original stories, have original characters, and to tell it in a, in a, in a really inventive and exciting way. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time there's been a film about black colleges and universities. And black colleges and universities have been um, institutions that have sustained African Americans and as such have sustained this country. So hopefully people will watch and, 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 and learn a little something, but also you know be entertained. Stanley Nelson is the director of the documentary, Tell Them We Are Rising, the Story of Black Colleges and Universities. Mr. Nelson, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. 
MPB is hosting a screening of Tell Them We Are Rising on Thursday at 3 o'clock at the Mississippi East Center in Jackson. Tickets are free, but you must register. All the information you need is at mpbonline.org. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Money Talks. Then at 10 o'clock, in legal terms. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Relatively Speaking from Southern Remedy. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu.